Well, so um, uh, I'm here to do the honors this evening to welcome our guest uh, lecturer, and it's a great uh, honor and a privilege to welcome Gordon Bell and Sheridan Forbes, who's jo uh, joining us uh, here this evening as well. Um, you know, I've known Gordon for a long time. I've known of him for a lot longer than I've known him. He was one of my heroes uh, when I was here even as a student. Uh, Gordon, as, as many of you know, uh, was one of the very early employees at Digital Equipment Corporation where he is credited, I think very correctly, with kind of inventing the concept of the mini-computer which led to so many other developments and really breaking kind of the mold of traditional computing uh, in the world up until that point uh, in many ways. And I, I think that's a tradition that Gordon's kept doing throughout his career. Uh, he was the first director of size at the National Science Foundation, which was the institution that invented, that invested in what ultimately became many of the developments that we use nowadays in the internet. Uh, there are many laws named after Gordon. Um, uh, he, one of the ones that I like the best is his definition of the um, um, the maximum performance of a multi-computer, and uh, Gordon defined that as absolutely positively the speed the computer will never exceed. So, uh, uh, which is absolutely appropriate for uh, that technology. Uh, he's now uh, a fellow at Microsoft Research, actively involved in research uh, over there uh, in in San Francisco. Um, a gentleman who has made contributions in so many areas it would take all night to go through them. He'll tell us a little bit about some of them. I think the one thing I want to summarize before I, I turn it over to Gordon is that as an entrepreneur, we can learn a lot from Gordon. There are many, many skills that he's demonstrated. One of the most important ones that I think he has is his absolute persistence. When he has an idea and he believes in it, he never gives up. And of all the great entrepreneurs I've ever met, that's the characteristic that makes a difference. So with that, uh, my pleasure to introduce Gordon Bell. Thanks very much. Hey, thank you. Actually, uh, I want to start with a little bit of a, a preamble, <coughs> given that this is a, a history uh, series. And uh, at one point, I was going to write an article about the history of something, and I was talking to Don Knuth, and he said, don't do it. It's, they're just too hard to write. They're so finicky. You have to stick with all those details, and, and then you've got all these people nitpicking everything. So I took his advice. Um, but my uh, brush with history was in the forming of uh, the Computer History Museum, which I hope, hope you'll all visit uh, in, uh, in Mountain View. Uh, so that was a way to deal with that. And in fact, in that brush, with it, that constant brush with history, uh, I always get into this collection of things. Uh, Sheridan made, the, made a, a large number of uh, things about history, and, and they're, they're all good advice. And the one that I, I kind of like about uh, of history is uh, uh, that first one is a great one of uh, Sort of the last person standing writes it, and uh, and I've gotten in the brushes I've had with it. One of the things we did, by the way, in the museum was to go out and get the all the 20 living people who had had built the first computers. Did that about uh, at 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 digital in uh, 1978. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing is the number of people that pop out of the woodwork that. That uh, uh, that talk about the what they what they claim and define. 
so anyway, beware of history and histor historians because they're nothing but stories. The issue is the only difference between that and them and fiction is that you have to be constrained by the points. And so history is really deciding which points to pick and which to leave out. And uh, so with that, uh, I'll, that's my caveat on, 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 the, uh, on the talk and on, and on history. And beware of that as you're listening to all the people talk about history. Anyway, uh, this is really a talk uh, that has about five uh, intertwined themes or books. Unfortunately, they're intertwined as opposed to I, if I had just given them as five separate ones, uh, it might make more sense, but I will weave in and out of those. Uh, the first one is really this theme of, of technology, uh, this evolving technology, mostly characterized by Moore's Law, but in fact has, has the corresponding uh, uh, improvements in magnetic materials, in photons, in, in, uh, in the development of, of software, of learning curves, and, uh, and all of that. So it's really a thing about change. And in that, in that context, I basically say uh, I don't acknowledge that the technology is necessarily disruptive. Uh, or I say, by definition, te all technology is disruptive. So I don't really have a lot of uh, sympathy with that there being an innovator's dilemma. There's always, it's always changing and you have to deal with it. And uh, it's really uh, uh, people who are, are foolish and don't deal with it that I, uh, that I can't, can't condone. So it's really, uh, there will be this sort of technology theme and, and things marked by that. And I hope this will be useful in some of the other classes that you uh, get because there are, people are getting on and off the t curve at, the, at different points. Uh, uh, certainly, I'd say Butler and I overlap and have worked in various parts of computer space um, but have, have, been, have been dealing with the same technology. <coughs> The second uh, part I'm going to talk about is really uh, Bell's Law, which is a uh, thing that, quote, this is a law that I determined that was in about 1971, and, uh, and at the same time I also invented Moore's Law. Unfortunately, it was six years after Moore invented Moore's Law, and I, when I introduced him at one talk, talk I um, introduced it that way that I, I also had invented it, but it was just uh, a little bit late. But these are this important inter, um, understanding of, of how, uh, of basically of learning curves and how, how we're all on a cycle to, uh, to evolve, uh, evolve computing. So that's sort of the second theme, and, and, and there will be a section on, on Bell's Law and how that, how, how that, how technology is, is used to determine these, uh, these computer classes. And then also the part that until I gave, started talking about, thinking about this class, uh, the issue about how they die. Uh, and I haven't, and so I need to figure out how that, how that, how how death go, becomes part of the uh, uh, part of the uh, formation process. So it's so we've got this the uh, issue of technology of transistors, the IC, VLSI, 
uh, and some uh, and how those have manifest themselves into computers. So that's uh, sort of the second theme. The third theme is about many computers as really an example of one of the classes, uh, just like PCs or mainframes or uh, or the emerging classes like uh, uh, wireless sensor nets that we're all uh, they're being built right here and uh, uh, created right here in, um, in Berkeley before our eyes. The fourth, uh, the fourth theme is really about DEC and digital as a uh, as an example of all of this, uh, of all of how how things uh, how things happen. And then, by the way, and then if we have time. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the culture of DEC, compare uh, a bit with Microsoft, and then how how that's all uh, come about in terms of of uh, of why did it only why did it only get to age 41? Uh, and I think there are a lot of companies uh, would like to reach age 41. Uh, uh, if you, for example, look at uh, where some of the companies are, some of the workstation companies are. Gee, are barely 20 or 25 at this point, and uh, and so you have to worry about that. So, in a in a sense, uh, there's a there's a thing that happened with digital uh, was in fact it was it was DEC was found guilty of violating Moore's law, and uh, and it was fatal. Uh, the sequence that I'm going to go through here is really one of first deck starting out. Building the first, uh, acquiring transistorized circuits uh, from Lincoln Lab, where the founders uh, uh, came from, and that was sort of a period of 1957 to 1965. Second trial for DEC was really, so I'd say the first trial is really can you build a company? Second trial was, in fact, can you make a transition to integrated circuits as those came in? Uh, and then there was also another little thing with the uh, 19, uh, 1964 when IBM uh, decided that everything would be an 8-bit byte, and that was a that to a certain extent was a trial. There was a trial with VLSI uh, that I I participated in, and that was the forming, learning to master VLSI and being able to to work at that work at a chip level, having. Uh, really worked at uh, a larger component uh, level. Uh, and then uh, as we built VACs uh, and the VAC systems, which uh, <coughs> you, Berkeley was a great uh, user of those, and uh, uh, in fact, I think uh, Berkeley Unix was ma mainly done on, on the VACs. And uh, <coughs> uh, the building of Clusters came out of some of that effort, and then then it entered a period where essentially there were a bunch of different technology and uh, 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 changes that occurred, and that was the advent of the killer micro. That is the time when a microprocessor got fast enough to threaten refrigerator-sized boxes, <coughs> and now they're sort of pizza-sized boxes. Unix was a part of that. Uh, PCs, workstations, CMOS, and Unix are all as standards. And it, got, and it was at that point that sort of anyone can manufacture a computer. In fact, people did. 
uh, Michael Dell uh, manufactured uh, uh, manufactured them in his dorm room dorm room to start. And then, hey Gordon, what was your period of time with Deck? Uh, my, well, I was at Deck from 1960 as the second computer engineer, and uh, I took a sabbatical in 1966 uh, to 1972. Uh, was on the uh, on the faculty at uh, Carnegie Mellon, and then I came back from. Uh, from leave uh, leave of deck uh, to take a leave from Carnegie. I think I'm still on leave at Carnegie Mellon uh, in 19 uh, in 1972, and then I left in 1983. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I like to say I sat out the sort of what I call the third generation. That is designing with uh, integrated circuits. Uh, really came back to be able to to use to get DEC into the integrated <coughs> circuits business. Uh, and then DEC in the end uh, failed to exploit a number of things. So kind of that's if uh, that, that's kind of a six step uh, sort of what happened to or, or five steps and what happened to to DEC uh, in the in the short form. So I, I'm starting out by telling you what the uh, the punchline <laughs> is. Um, this uh, are a bunch of references that you have, which uh, I'm not going to go uh, uh, go over. Uh, so the the talk really is is got about these uh, six parts. Uh, the uh, uh, two parts uh, up until uh, uh, the uh, main main formation of the vax. And then I want to give this theory of Bell's law of how computer classes classes form, and then uh, and then uh, we'll talk about uh, these later later these more recent stages. And then if we have time, we'll talk about the deck organization and, and culture and a little bit of comparison with uh, uh, with with Microsoft. Uh, let's see. Uh, in a in a way, deck deck came out of a uh, out of, I'd say is classic how how at least I like to think of the way high tech companies form or technology companies form, and that is uh, they work at a at a university at a lab they're doing at the advanced uh, kind of work, and something is uh, there's an opportunity that presents itself in that. In this case, uh, Ken Olson, Harlan Anderson, and Stan Olson, Ken's brother, left MIT's Lincoln Lab. They had the understanding to build these transistorized logic circuits. Uh, they then went over and they collected uh, uh, $70,000 from uh, uh, a guy by the name of General Dorio, which is considered kind of the uh, founding uh, one of the founding fathers of venture capital, uh, certainly the founding father in uh, the Boston area, and then started the started the company. Uh, the business plan was to design, manufacture, and sell these circuits. Uh, these are AND gates, OR gates, flip flops, the like, and eventually use that earnings, use the circuits as they built them, and then build a computer. Uh, and of course, at the time, it would have been fatal to say, "What are we going to do? We're going to form a computer company." 
bad idea. And uh, uh, the museum has a lot of the deck artifacts in there, and then it also has a, a movie celebrating the uh, PDP-1 uh, and some of the uh, software that was, uh, uh, was developed there. Some here's some financial size and, and dates, namely uh, <coughs> things that I found interesting were uh, there was the 70,000 70, was, uh, was interesting. The uh, five, these were five, kilo, five megahertz modules. So, you know, we're at uh, five, five gigahertz at today. So that's a, a factor of a thousand change. So uh, things have changed, changed a bit, quite a bit. Uh, they were profitable their first year. And General Dorio said, oh, this is, this is a bad omen. No one's ever been profitable the first year. And so what did these guys know? They were just engineers, and they said, and the idea was to make money and to make, be profitable. And so they said, well, we designed the system and to, to uh, stay profitable. Uh, the irony was that they, uh, almost from the day they opened the door, their inventory went down. Their pri they, I think they w opened the door and they bought about $30,000 worth of transistors. These were uh, surface barrier transistors. And, uh, uh, and then within six months, somebody had offered them for about a tenth the price. So, so here their inventory, uh, uh, their uh, balance sheet would have looked terrible if, if, if they were measured uh, strictly on that basis. Uh, the first thing they did was was to start ma uh, manufacturing uh, the modules. They ma then manufactured some uh, uh, special systems for testing memories. The first first uh, computer was the PDP-1, and that first version prototype was sold to Bolt, Baranek, and Newman, the company I think we all uh, still recognize uh, today in the uh, in the R or in the research business and the and the, and and the product and networking business. Um, the uh, that uh, the I'll have to, I should say why it's what PD, PDP stands for and it's program data processor because this was at a time when. You were trying, maybe selling to the government, and there was a sort of czar, you know, as governments kind of come and go, they're a czar of somebody, something. And computers were not, were really scrutinized, but program data processors, oh, that's no big deal. And hey, so it was named, named, so named to avoid. Uh, Gordon, here's, uh, avoid here's our story up here, okay? You remember Ted Kale at the University of Washington? Yes, I remember. So Kale, Kale at one point was had a, a National Institutes of Health grant to produce a bunch of lab machines. Essentially, this is custom machines for uh, NIH biological lab guys. And the University of Washington had an embargo for some reason on purchasing tape drives. And so Kale wrote a PO for 15 magnetic media manipulators, and it went through. MM, <laughs> right. <laughs> Sounds right. So it's all about naming. Uh, in 1965, the uh, PDP, PDP-5, that is the, really the prototype for the first Mini. And at that same year, we had both the smallest machine that we could think of building, the Mini computer, and the largest computer we were thinking of doing. Absolutely insane. 
It's amazing that the company survived all of this. This is a $15 million company coming out with two major computers, and particularly the PDP-6 which uh, that I, I architected and was the project engineer of. Uh, and 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 was part of the whole time share, starting the whole time sharing. Butler and I argue about whether our when I when the disks got on and whether it swapped or not, whether he was before before us or not. But this was a commercial computer, not a not a a, a lab uh, uh, a one of. Uh, P, the PDP-11 was came out in '71, uh, and uh, that. Uh, to solve the address space problem, and then in '78 uh, uh, we to solve the address space problem again, uh, we came out with fax, uh, and then uh, and then that was the beginning of what I would call a, kind of a, a straight up all uh, straight up uh, uh, growth. Although DEC, from the time that I came back in. Uh, I'd say almost from the beginning, DEC grew at 41% per year. Which act, and because I always just used semi log paper to plot everything, so 41% was pretty nice because, uh, so you double every 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 two years. Remind and, people uh, what VAX stands for. What? Remind people of what VAX stands okay, for. Uh, va okay, VAX is, uh, was a, a name that I had coined to keep, uh, keep us honest as we were doing the design which was a virtual address extension to the 11. So as opposed to going off uh, to something that would be incompatible and, and uh, look in a different way why uh, I wanted to call it the, uh, the VAX, just to constrain our thinking. So it was a, it was a way, a technique to constrain our thinking. Um, in 88, uh, DEC was number two computer company, uh, Fortune 38, uh, high market cap. Uh, and then by 92, uh, uh, Ken Olson was uh, removed as the CEO. Uh, Alpha came out, the 64-bit uh, computer. And then uh, by 2002, uh, uh, HP had acquired, uh, had acquired it. So let me go back from back a bit, and here are the these are the first modules. The note that this these little guys right here were transistors. Uh, each of those are a transistor, and uh, this was uh, uh, you put these things together, and then you wired them with patch panels uh, in a patch panel fashion. So they were kind of they were called logic labs. This was the actual module that when you were going to build something, why it's built the same way we do, still build, build things today, which is uh, the modules are a lot bigger today, but in fact, uh, the, these were plugged into a backplane, and then you wired the backplane and so on. This particular module has six transistors. So whatever you can make with six transistors, uh, you can stack these up and make two, three input AND gates, uh, and or gates, or, or what have you, with uh, with just by the way you wired wired things together. Uh, the uh, and this was uh, one of the first system that the company had built in uh, prior to '60, and that was uh, a, a tester for magnetic core core, core memory uh, modules. 
Here's the uh, PDP-1 prototype uh, that's at the Computer Museum. So you can see these modules back here. Uh, there were 25 modules across in a 19-inch rack, and then uh, uh, up to uh, 12 uh, bays of these uh, these modules in a in a 19-inch standard 19-inch rack. I'm here with it at the museum. That's my cell phone that has two gig two gigabytes of memory. This baby here had four uh, four kilowords, uh, four, uh, and, a, and a word was 18 bits. So it's a little over eight uh, eight kilobytes. Uh, so uh, that's that was what the change in 19, 1960. Uh, it was patterned after the Lincoln Lab uh, TX0. Uh, there were about 40 of them sold. Uh, I ended up being the project engineer of 20 of them, which was uh, the uh, were sold to, to IT&T for message switching. So. Uh, this guy came to us and said, gee, uh, we get these messages from Europe. The way we do it now, they come in on a, on a teletype. Uh, they come in on, and are perforated. The messages come in and are perforated on a tape. And then we look at the message, find out, and hang it on a little clothesline, hang it and find out where's that going. And so you move to another reperforator and move that to, and then go and uh, uh, send that out. Uh, to the destination. Now, I would love to find, have found out that there's actually two of these computers hooked together in tandem because it would totally, totally destroy all the history of, the, of networking because that would have been datagram switching. But that wasn't how it worked. It really, these were radial kinds of systems. So the tape came in <coughs> to the computer and then went out on another line. So it was re really just a hub. But if, if there had only been two of them put together, uh, why we would, why then uh, this would have been the first message, uh, first uh, 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 packet or datagram switching uh, system. Uh, but it wasn't. On the other hand, one of the things that came out of that was I got enamored with uh, serial communication, invented a thing called the UART, which I don't know whether that name still stands for in, in, uh, in networking, but that's Universal Asynchronous Receiver Transmitter. And so that's basically a serial line comes in uh, and is synced uh, and converted, uh, converted to parallel and then brought in and you know you, you read your messages off. That's basically how all the computer-to-computer -computer communication is, is done today. Uh, this is sort of the way we conceptualize the machine in the, in the, uh, uh, in the manual, uh, in the PDP-1 manual. This first, uh, uh, my friends at Livermore looked at this. Uh, this is the Livermore, the National Lab at Livermore uh, looked at this and said, "Oh my God! Look at all of this, all of this stuff. We've 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 got this problem of we want to convert all these tapes to other tape formats. We've got cards. We've got displays that we want to uh, uh, that we've got to read. Uh, I, by the way, I think in your all the slides uh, you have all this, but it had 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 uh, uh, a, a scope and a high precision scope. It had different kinds of." Tape units, it had card readers, punches, printers, you name it. And Livermore saw this thing as, oh, heaven, 
just what we needed. We want to, we we want to buy one, and they did. They bought one of, they bought one of everything that we had. The only problem is we hadn't built any of it. We had, none of us had been. <laughs> it was all, you know, it was all. Gee, this would be nice to have, but then 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 these guys come and buy it, and so we were we were stuck with having to design uh, to design all of these <laughs> these things, including. A, a, a Remington Rand tape controller, Remington Rand tape, and uh, and IBM tapes, and uh, and and uh, I remember particularly re fondly remember the card reader, uh, which was they had uh, the card reader we were offering had some phenomenal capacity, uh, and a thousand cards a minute or or so, and um, uh, I. I don't even remember the company who built it, but they, I remember the guy who was debugging it. You, and you hear this screeching noise, and, and suddenly all of these cards were all folded up in a little bit of the accordion thing. So it was like an orga, origami device. Uh, but uh, anyway, it was, uh, we survived, again, we, another thing we survived. Thanks to uh, IT&T uh, buying, uh, buying production units. Uh, this is the PDP-5, which is really the uh, the prototype, I think, or archetype for what became the mini computer and and, and the mini computer industry, that w of which there were uh, about a hundred companies formed. So the PDP-5 came out of uh, uh, the need to have a controller for a reactor. Uh, uh, I. I, uh, we had just designed the PDP, another computer, PDP-4. We had gone to, uh, uh, we went up to visit the, the reactor site, which was in Ottawa, uh, uh, in Chalk River, Canada, which is a couple hundred miles <coughs> north of Ottawa, and find out what they wanted done. And uh, uh, I w it was I and Ed DeCastro, who was the later formed Data General, and uh, I don't know a couple of other guys, but I remember coming back from that. You know, uh, thirty below zero. We drove back that evening to uh, to Ottawa, and I said, "Gee, you know, we don't want to make a specialized thing to control just that reactor. Let's make a computer because Ed was going to design a special system to make sure the comp the reactor didn't blow up when the computer failed. So let's make an." The way to solve that problem is have another computer that controls it uh, that's smaller uh, that may or may not blow up <laughs> uh, when the uh, so that we'll 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 have that computer not fail and and uh, and uh, the actual control computer will uh, uh, will be be separated from that. So basically, and we came back from that, looked at it, we started out trying to think of let's build the smallest computer we can. Can and hence the idea of mini, and not the way I've always classified mini as minimal. That is, take everything out you uh, you can uh, and build that build that machine. So it was not it was, and by definition it was a really reduced instruction set. I mean, I would defy Dave Patterson to reduce it any more than this. Here are the this is all the instructions there. These are there are six. Uh, memory addressable instructions of 128 words each, 
And then uh, there was an I.O. instruction that, uh, drove, that you control things with, and then another instruction called the operating instruction that you could go out and, and, uh, and, twiddle, uh, and twiddle various bits uh, with that. So anyway, the first machine looked like that. It was a single, single bay, and uh, uh, I think it was only four. It had about 100 modules, uh, modules in it. Um, anyway, that was uh, that was around 1965, uh, or that same time frame. At the relatively in the same time frame, in March 1964, we I had been building the largest computer we could think of, and this was the PDP-3, which was a time-sharing computer. So this was at a time when MIT had just built CTSS, a, a compatible or yeah, I guess compatible time-sharing system that was running on the 7090, so we said, oh yeah, well we can, we can build one of those, uh, and uh, went off and, and worked on, on this, and introduced, this was a Business Week article, uh, recall that in 4, I think it's 4-7, uh, um, May, May 6th or May 7th, 1964, was the announcement of the 360, so this is just preceding the first uh, the 360 announcement, uh, and then this this machine had uh, was a basically to run multiple terminal multiple teletypes at once. Um, that first machine actually ran. Uh, 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 we offered that as a minimum of 16 kilowords, 16 kilowords or 64, roughly 64 kilobytes. And that, and it had to do time sharing. So we had three users uh, in there. One could be doing editing, one could be compiling uh, or running a Fortran, and one one could be doing something else. So, boy, this was really, uh, really a cramped, uh, uh, really a challenge to get get things done in the, in that uh, in that space. Was that you? Uh, that's me. Yeah, that's me as a youth. And this was Dick Best, who was the uh, a beautiful system. Uh, he was the the chief engineer. He was a circuits guy. Could design any 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 circuit uh, circuit you wanted. But uh, anyway, Dick and I were there before the machine. Um, and uh, uh, about twenty of these were sold. And this was the forerunner to the PDP-10 and uh, and the and the like. Um, I think the other other little story about that is th just this weekend I got an email from a professor at uh, what is what used to be Brooklyn Poly. He was writing an article about the change in software engineering. He said, "Gee, there was a rumor that that somebody had written a compiler at DEC and it had one comment, and it was RIP uh, JSB." Uh, and it was sort of rest in peace, Johann Sebastian Bach. And I know, and uh, and he said, "Is it true?" And I said, "Unfortunately, it's true. The only thing that's not true is it was the PDP six, not the P, not the PDP four." And he had one comment in this humongous compiler that was the first <coughs> syntax directed compiler, and all it had was sort of it was a compiler that had tables of pattern matching and. Uh, and you had no idea what was going on there. 
uh, in terms of, of that. Uh, I think it took us about six months to untangle it. One, I mean, it, was a, it ended up to being a nice piece of work, but we certainly had no idea what it was uh, was doing at the time. And that was the days when programmers were really, really individuals, and and you didn't want to be around. You didn't want to be around the residue after this. Um, these are a bunch of the slide, slides from the uh, I took the other day at the museum. Uh, this is a PDP one as it's ended up. Uh, Space War was the first computer, first program I think uh, uh, that it's that was most interesting program that was run on on the PDP one. That uh, and that that's been used many times to settle a lot of lawsuits on who was the first computer game. So I mean, it now this this machine runs. My grandchildren recently played Space War on it. Uh, it has a five-part uh, compiler, uh, music compiler uh, on it, actually written by the guy who wrote the uh, wrote the compiler for the PDP-6. Uh, and uh, I, I've not, still never disclosed his name, but um, anyway, that. that uh, uh, but it's truly uh, kind of an inspiration to see see this thing run. This was re the uh, group at the museum had had been working for about a year to re to get the machine to to work again and to make it in a runnable condition. It's in in absolutely beautiful shape. The hard part being the dis running the display. That's a thousand point uh, uh, thousand thousand by a thousand display uh, point plotting display. This is a classic uh, PDP-8. That was that was the manufactured version of the PDP-5. Came out after uh, in 1966. Uh, and the interesting thing about the, how these things play together was the reason we were able to manufacture it was uh, in making the PDP-6. The biggest problem we had was. Jesus, they had all these wires. People, women had to wire from point to point, so we, they were wiring twisted pair, lots of wires. I mean, there were uh, 25 times 25 times uh, about 25, I guess, uh, uh, different uh, points that had to or had to be all connected. And uh, uh, I, I said, that's not going to, you know, we just can't manufacture these. Let's get a wiring machine, a wire wrap machine. It turns out that IBM had pioneered the uh, had had pioneered the design of a wire wrap machine uh, done by Gardner Denver. Univac had used it, and so I went off and sort of said, "Give me a wire wrap machine." And uh, so we ended up buying, uh, getting a wire wrap machine. And what that did for applied to this size machine, that is to a to the small size machine was it made the thing manufacturable. So we could then turn out these machines like like cookies, basically. Uh, and that was that was allowed us to take the what had been about a thirty thousand dollar machine and now offer that to about eighteen thousand dollars including a teletype. So what it did was really make and but may, more than that make make it really manufacturable and uh, and uh, that I'd say was was probably the key thing that that allowed uh, DEC to get in, get going in many computers. So this was 1965.
five, just prior to the introduction of the integrated circuit. Uh, if uh, I'd encourage you to use this is a this is a technique that I use to always look at what's going on in uh, in how how products what do you product strategy products how do you deal with them that is things that have derivatives from one another whether it's a compiler or uh, or a computer. Uh, or a, or a chipset for the and so this set of, this poster which is by the way is on my website uh, we've got the here's this this machine here starting in sixty uh, the, it was uh, at the last the PDP one was introduced sort of the uh, nineteen uh, at the last part of nineteen uh, nineteen sixty. And then a PDP-4 came out, and then then this was now a family of of 18-bit uh, computers. So uh, uh, I think uh, we were just talking about somebody had just used a, a PDP-7. Well, PDP-7 is sort of up here. Unix was built on uh, uh, Ken Thompson uh, put uh, Unix on that on the on the first PDP-7. Um, Gordon, question? Yeah. About, uh, it's, uh, you know, when I see uh, some of the uh, uh, word links here, 12 bits, 18 bits, I'm always a little surprised because since you're using binary, it almost seems natural to uh, use uh, powers of twos for word links. What was the uh, logic behind that? Okay, that was in the, in the first days that the, there was a six bit byte. And people were building basically six-bit uh, using a six-bit byte. The uh, uh, virtually all all the machines until the 360 was introduced were sort of modulo six bits. Uh, control data had a 48-bit uh, uh, word, for example, in their their high end. They ha uh, they also had a 12-bit machine, uh, and so. In, in the case of the PDP-8, it was more of, well, we started, I wanted a 9-bit computer just because of the n narrowness of what we had to do, do with it. But uh, we ended up, uh, uh, well, three more bits, and that gave us a lot, lot, lot more capability. Uh, in term, for example, in terms of riskness of the PDP-5, PDP-8, uh, given that first First task it had to do was was taking a lot of analog inputs. Was we had a uh, had a uh, a, uh, a, a digital uh, a digital analog converter on the accumulator. So you actually programmed the D to A. Uh, we subsequently put a similar kind of device to do to convert it into a UART. So a lot of these were. Uh, PDP PDP-8s were used as message switching computers, uh, and the only thing the line had was just a single bit to control to look at the line, and you programmed uh, you programmed everything else uh, on it. So that's kind of the the 18-bit, the 12-bit, and the PDP-6. So and notice that they were all coming out about the same time, and the, and the amazing thing it was Dex Dex survived. Uh, all of all of that, and in large part to the there was a uh, was talks speaks to the entrepreneurism and to the 
dedication uh, and the way the company was organized to go off and take each of these things and operate independently. So that really helped. Uh, you know, we had a we had a product line by word length, basically, <coughs> and then you'd go off and uh, uh, do some verticals within that. A lot of in in the case of the of the 18-bit uh, machines, those were uh, predominantly used for uh, for a lot of scientific uh, calculation uh, or sci real-time science uh, bubble chamber. Uh, reading, for example, uh, uh, scalars uh, uh, doing uh, pulse height an analysis uh, and distributions, things like that. And then uh, the big change really was going, switching to 16 bits, and that was a occurred in 19, uh, 1970. So anyway, this is just it on the, its size. Okay, so. Uh, uh, th this, that's really getting DEC started, and now I want to talk about uh, uh, going to uh, what was happening in the industry at that at that time. So, 1965, the integrated circuit was uh, came out, or the first integrated circuit, uh, uh, discrete in, or, uh, L or MSI, medium scale integrated circuits, small scale integrated circuits, that is, uh, integrated circuits that had a, uh, an adder or uh, a few gates on it. Um, and that was, at that point, then you're lowering the barrier to entry. Namely, anybody could go build, you know, you have all, all this pent up uh, creativity, or I'd say it wasn't creativity because they were all alike. 100 companies formed to build mini computers during the 1965 to 1980, uh, or I'm sorry, 1965 to 75-80 time frame, because you could. Uh, and everybody had their own idea of, well, I like an instruction set that looked like that, because it was great creativity to design, to design an instruction set. Uh, and, or uh, it, I'd say pseudo-creativity. They're they're not very hard, and, but uh, they're a lot of fun, and uh, and uh, and that uh, that was allowed a lot of people to go off and create a lot of machines. Um, this is uh, in the book uh, on digital. There's a lot of uh, I have a, there's a lot of diagrams, and I'd say this 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 one about. Uh, semiconductor generations, I think, is an important important one. So, if you look at the way these are the the transistor, I'd say transistor and and more uh, kinds of uh, of uh, of inventions. The forty in forty seven was the transistor. The integrated circuit was fifty eight, four double four seventy one. Uh, and then uh, the the first transistorized computers then came out were in 1959-1960. So the the DEC computer came out in that same time frame. But notice it's almost 13 years after the uh, after the transistor was invented. There were earlier the PDP, the uh, TX0 at MIT was earlier. There are a lot of earlier computers. One of but the first first 
use of transistors as a, in, in, uh, in companies was in the 1960 era. And then uh, 1979 was, uh, we uh, uh, got together and came up with Ethernet and LAN. That was a deal that uh, was done with DEC, Intel, and uh, Xerox. Um, so that, those are sort of low-level technologies. Then you've got these kinds of, I'd say, important uh, dates. The first IC computers were, integrated circuit computers were 66. There's this mini era which lasted, uh, you know, one could argue maybe it has lasted uh, 20 years, maybe it still exists. That is, there are still machines that are of in that same same price range. Uh, it's, they're sold by HP, they're sold by Sun. Uh, they're refrigerators, they're refrigerator size, but those have been, uh, in a sense, replaced by the notion of uh, of clustered machines. 1972 was the, uh, 1971 was the first micro, but then microcomputers, that is the first use of microprocessors as a computer uh, was really in, in 75. And then the, in 81 and 84, uh, we saw the, you know, the IBM uh, PC and the Mac, or the, vice versa. And, uh, and then that was the beginning of Unix. VAX then played an important part because it was introduced here, and and Unix was was uh, developed in uh, uh, really here at that at that time and was uh, a main driver of of the I'd say the replacement of the of the uh, of the mini per se. Uh, Ninety two was a World Wide Web and and so on. So the deck. These red lines are sort of the deck, what deck was doing at uh, at those. I've got 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 some more s slides on those. Um, this is a uh, this this is a couple of uh, definitions that I had in from papers in 1970 and 71 uh, at the introduction of this was 1970 when we introduced the uh, PDP 11, and that was when we sort of I think the first use of the mini, and this was in a footnote, and that was the was defined as here's how much memory it had, here uh, here's what its price price was, and this is how many bits it had, and so on. Uh, and then uh, in a in the paper in '71, I basically just defined it in this this in this way. That is, it's really a minimal computer. Uh, you take the Current technology, and then you combine it in the smallest, uh, smallest package that you can, trading off everything with software. So uh, I suspected uh, this is also fits the risk definition. Um, and then the characteristics uh, uh, were really it was the minimal computer you can be built at the state of the art. And then it and then it's uh, uh, and it's minimal in terms of of a uh, fixed cost. Um, uh, this you're gonna uh, you're gonna have to get these slides off the the net to look at the, at this one. I I'm sorry about this, but 
this was a paper I wrote in 1984. <coughs> so the mini computer industry per se, I think, I tried to do, a, to sum it up, so here was 20 years of how it, how, how it all came together. And uh, uh, I'll just sort of read some of these. There were about 50 started up and, and uh, two grew uh, and continued to have autonomy. And those were Data General and Prime. Uh, a few found niches, but then 40 uh, exist, uh, 40 uh, went out of business. Uh, of 10 started up and merged with larger companies, so a couple of those were successful mergers at that point in time. Uh, some of the existing companies that uh, still were existing was DEC and IBM, because I said DEC had made a transition in what it, done, it had done. And then uh, in this final category, 25 non-computer non companies uh, had built computers and that included HP. So of this, uh, this is all winnowed down, these hundred winnowed down very rapidly to, uh, uh, to about three or four, and then uh, those, those are ones that ended up uh, and survived into the, uh, uh, to the 90s. Question? Yeah. Uh, what kind of computer uh, replaced the mini computer in 1990? What happened at that time? Uh, what, what, what happened was the, uh, the microprocessor, per se, took what had been discrete. People had been working at a certain price land. I'll talk, talk about that in the next in this section on the classes. And what happened was the microcomputer came in and was, uh, was able to, with just in the chip, wipe out. Uh, wipe those out. And so basically you had to build a, use a different structure to get to that same price level. And that's, when I came back from C, from Carnegie, the issue was I saw that happen, that was going to happen, and so DEC had to get into the VLSI business. So be, because it, it's either that or it, or it buys VLSI. Didn't, you know, you, I mean, DEC could have been easily viable too as a as an assembler of, of LSI, uh, uh, LSI chips and tried to pack as many as it could. But in fact, the, over, the thing is that the overhead structure of a company determines to a large extent what it can deal with. And I've got, I've got numbers about why, why, that, why that happens or how that happens. Sure. Um, Follow on to that from the University of Washington? Yeah. So when you look at the LSI 11 forward, DEC was essentially building microprocessors, but you couldn't go out and buy a J11. You could buy a processor board. And would things have turned out differently, do you think, if you could have gone out and bought a J11, if DEC had decided to distribute it for a processor? That, this, was, this was a constant fight, that, I, and it was sort of one to eight that I lost. Uh, namely... Uh, DEC regarded its corporate jewels as being its architecture. And I regarded that as, uh, yeah, that's nice. That's what we use for trading. And uh, we had uh, many, uh, in fact, the first thing that I did when I came back in 1972 was I went to Silicon Valley. 
because I had all this stuff. Well, there's SOS, there's NMOS, there's PMOS. <coughs> and in a sense, almost everything I learned about semiconductors was from that trip. I was sitting there with Bob Noyce and uh, Gordon Moore and, and no, I, not Andy Grove, but I think the two of them. And I was trying to give them the PDP-8. You know, please make the PDP-8 for us. Uh, uh, make this as a as a chipset, and they were already on a course at that point to get a to introduce to do the eight double oh eight. But uh, but anyway, I saw that that threat coming in, and when we had the J eleven, <coughs> the T eleven J eleven, I've got uh, uh, we had the one chip one chip eleven. It all it, the theme came back even with Vax. It came in with uh, we had that same argument with National Semiconductor. I tried to get a deal with with them, but in a funny way, National Semi at the time they had a nice NS3202 32-bit machine, copy near copy of a Vax. It was you know, but just a little bit different. And so I what I wanted to do is is get them to make an exact Vax. And then this, of course, within deck was, was, oh, you can't ever have any, we can't have a competitor. People can go out and make computers that will compete with us uh, using our architecture. And I said, well, we do have this stuff called software. Uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's utilize that as, our, uh, as, as what we sell. But it was a case of, uh, I think that was, that, that was one of the, I don't even, Put that down as a serious, as a, in my flaws of that happened. I've I had forgotten all those very painful arguments uh, about how to do about standards and proprietary and all of the stuff, all the good stuff you learn in business school, which is absolutely wrong. That is keeping keeping it to yourself. In fact, you know I think if if people hadn't understood what ether. Uh, what was going on with Ethernet? We probably couldn't have done the deal. It was just, uh, it, uh, yeah. I'll, t I'll tell you a little bit about the Ethernet story later. Later, but in fact, making that making that thing a standard was very was very critical. But yet, counter to a lot of the culture at the uh, at the time where we wanted to do it ourselves. Another question from Washington. Yeah. Uh, but didn't. Uh Sort of the counter argument could be made from the uh, IBM's experience with the IBM PC. I mean, they made that public, and um, I don't believe they're manufacturing those anymore. That's right. So. But but I'll go back to that. I think it might have happened. I don't know. what That's one you can rewrite any way you want to. There's many stories. To <laughs> but because uh, you, know, you, the nice thing is you can't rewrite the future based on on the way it could have been. But had IBM gone proprietary, the damn industry wouldn't have formed. Or it would have formed a different way. It might have formed a different way. But it's certainly the rapid proliferation because of a standard, and I'll, I'll attribute that to my, uh, my current employer, that having the standard there is what drove it. In fact, why we were never, why, why Microsoft, at least a couple of times I've heard, was never worried about Unix was the fact that it was, that there wasn't a standard. Now we're a lot more worried about it because, in fact, there's more of a standard 
but until it proliferates and fragments and goes to many different ways, then you can't, can't build the software uh, on that. The whole issue of compatibility to me is a, is a very, very important uh, thing. And, I'm, and I must confess, I'm a standards nut. I like standards so that you can make progress at the next, um, at the next level. But uh, certainly, uh, DEC was one at that era, and in fact, most companies were keep it keep it that way. In fact, if you look at the IBM 360, uh, which went away, which standardized, that basically they just moved the moved the uh, moved the uh, uh, where they get their money from the hardware to the software. So I mean, it's. Uh, uh, and uh, certainly Gene Amdahl likes to plot his graph of what happened to the price of MIPS when the Amdahl, I don't know, 370 or 470 was, was introduced. Uh, dramatic price, price uh, uh, shift. This is the PDP-11 uh, tree. This, there's kind of a little interesting story here, and this was, uh, as it was being introduced, uh, <coughs> DEC was behind the, was, I'd been, I was at Carnegie uh, at the time. It turned out that the guys um, uh, chartered with developing the next follow-on, which is actually to be a 16-bit machine. Uh, one of them was Ed DeCastro. And Ed and the crew had developed it, and, and uh, they got into kind of a, I had sort of, Bless the machine. They came to Carnegie, and I looked at the machine. I said, "Great machine, let's go build it." And it turned out that what happened was uh, they got back, and uh, they got into sort of the political fights that uh, uh, <coughs> that can often happen in a, in a technical company, and uh, left and formed Data General. So here, here, Decker's. My God, what are we going to do? You know, we need a 16-bit machine. We've got these 12-bit machines. We've got these 18-bit machines. The world wants 16-bit machines. So, uh, you know, there was a crew who got assembled to, to design one. And, and uh, one, of the, one of the people that had been a student of mine at, at Carnegie was on, on, the, on the design team. And although the design was fairly far along, and we had a couple of ideas, Unibus, which was an idea that I had come up with while writing computer structure. So why you write text sometimes is described to describe stuff. And so the Unibus was a major, uh, that, that connection, that, that bus structure uh, of which uh, I'm very fond uh, is, uh, was, was one, of the, one of the earmarks of it. But the other thing was they started to put the, put the uh, uh, design together. They had a design. They came to Carnegie. Uh, the team came to Carnegie. There were about three of them. And Bill Wolf, who's the president of the National Academy, was a professor there, and I were going to vet the design. So we sat there all weekend looking at this thing. We said, oh, this is terrible. You know, this. And so Harold McFarland, who had been my student, sort pulls out of his pocket this thing. So here's the machinery we had talked about uh, building. And so uh, that, I guess it was, they came in on Friday night or Friday. Sunday, the, I was the head of the, 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 the VP who was, had all of this 
called me. He said, how's it going? I said, it's, it's great. He said, you like, so you like the machine? I said, well, we've made a few changes. And, <laughs> and so I think all we saved was a board or something like that. But the machine was totally re-architected uh, uh, that weekend. Uh, and they went back to... Uh, uh, to use the uh, to use that the current uh, what is the current PDP 11 and again the architecture of the PDP 11 is a concept that in fact if you look at the original computer structures which came out in 70 uh, 71 the idea I came up with the idea of generalize generalize the generalize the hell out of the register generalize everything and so that whole whole concept of generality that, that is the unibus, the ethernet, and the, uh, uh, and the architecture there uh, was really uh, came out of, uh, of writing about all of those, uh, those things. So yeah. um, how important was the unibus, Gordon? What? How important was the unibus to the sort of proliferation of the machine? Uh, I, in, in many computers, the I.O. IO is, is where it's all at. If, it has to conceptually look like, oh my, I can put my cigarette making machine or I can put my uh, uh, measurement device or uh, you know, my communications gear so that they can interface it cleanly and, and simply. And so it was, it was really well, it, you know, I think this goes back to uh, the guy Mark, Andy Knowles, who was head of the group at that time and then mar marketed it. But it was a, it was a super selling point uh, for for interfacing. In fact, I'd say, you know, I'll I'll say in the in the case of the PDP six, that one of the things that was about the six was that we had in the reference manual we published the I/O spec, the I/O bus, and the memory bus. And guess what? We created the mem the add-on memory business right there before our very eyes. So that was going to be my question, which is that yeah. you guys, you guys um, uh, opened up the Unibus, but you protected like hell the mass bus. Exactly. Right. And, and what, what was the argument there? Yeah, the argument is we had to have some place to put the profit. And so the disk, you know, because memories uh, were, because we had the, the, the Unibus was open because otherwise people couldn't connect to it. Uh, and then the mass bus was was we just absolutely do not want anybody connecting to that. And so, so we, you just basically made the markup on the disks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The markup was uh, you know because you because otherwise you sort of have this component and then everybody flocks to to put uh, build build uh, plug compatibles for whatever whatever level that you that you operate. Uh, so I'm uh, not going to talk about VAX next, but I'm now I want to go uh, now into this this third point, which is basically the uh, the theory of these uh, computer classes, and that is how how they how they form. So we've only kind of really talked about the mini forming and then the the transformations <laughs> uh, that it's gone through, but. Uh, uh, it's really uh, one of, of it applies to everything else. So uh, there are a bunch of laws I think that govern sort of manufactured devices, manufactured things, and that's something about demand. And I uh, 
and then that that doubles or whatever as some price declines by some amount. The big one that I I learned about uh, when I wrote at least uh, uh, explored was the issue of learning curves. Learning curves are an old idea uh, that I think they were, I don't know when they were really first academically described, but they, but it was sort of World War II, I suspect, 19, 19 early in 40s or so. And that the learning curve says that when you're building something, when you're manufacturing something, every time you double the double the amount that you've actually done, then the price or the effort or cost or whatever will decline by by ten or ten or fifteen percent. And in a in a way, that's uh, a little a part of Moore's law because there's learning because you're manufacturing a lot of these different items, but uh, there's more to Moore's law than that because there it doesn't account for the discrete jumps. That that that's a continuous curve as opposed to the discrete curves uh, that you get in Moore's law when you actually go from a, across different manufacturing. Uh, Bill's law uh, was for Unix at one point. I heard uh, uh, Bill Joy describe that. Uh, and then uh, so we've got Nathan's law about software and uh, Metcalf's law about the value of the network. And then Sorry, could you uh, say in a sentence, please, what these laws are? Uh, I'm going to say, okay. go go over them. The one that I kind of like was I heard Bill Joy uh, give me this uh, law when he came to uh, <coughs> the National Science Foundation one, one time. He says, "Gee, we can't really. No one can write uh, for." He was bemoaning the Unix problem of of uh, getting software, and there's no one can uh, uh, can uh, afford to write the software for under. A, 100,000 units. This was when Sun had just <coughs> attained 100,000 units, and it was sort of saying, "Well, you've got to write software for our 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 version of Unix." And basically, it's why they're really a Unix uh, uh, software industry on Unix, uh, 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 sort of a shrink wrap thing, has never developed. But Bill Bill Gates' software is really you can't afford to do it for under. Under a million, it's probably more like 10 million now, uh, and the, and this is certainly not 10 million dollars, but 100 million dollars, and uh, and what you have to do is maintain a maintain the price. So uh, these are all <coughs> all things that in fact uh, have that uh, that have gone on in the way uh, pricing and uh, and volume relate to competition. Uh, certainly, the uh, or the fact that SQL Server came out at a at a six thousand dollar price versus a hundred thousand dollars has totally changed the database uh, database industry. Uh, certainly, this when you can afford a spreadsheet. Uh, this tells you when you can afford those kinds of things, but that can all and you know and right now this is a dilemma that. You'd see it at a Microsoft, which is, gee, I, if I put that on a central server, then I can deliver that to uh, 50, 100 million people uh, very rapidly, and so that costs zero essentially. And all, all I need to maintain at that level is maybe 
ten cents a, a use or a dollar a <laughs> dollar a version or something to get to get your price back. So this all follows this sort of virtual virtuous economic cycle of some innovation uh, providing a utility, uh, giving you volume and competition setting in which drives comp uh, innovation. And that's all uh, around, uh, certainly standards enable that cycle, uh, cycle of, uh, uh, to occur. The one I think we all know most about is uh, Moore's Law, which is essentially the doubling uh, of uh, the uh, densi transistor density doubling every, or per die doubling every uh, uh, 18 months. And until recently, there's the kind of dilemma of, well, what do you, uh, you know, what do you do with that more with, uh, ex except from, uh, for caches, but we're into, uh, uh, you know, people had for a long time said, well, that's, that's the, the speed also doubles. Well, the speed is never doubled. At most, it was the square root of that because that was, uh, has to do with line, line width. And it was all the architectural Im improvements that allowed uh, speed to improve. But in fact, now people are back on, quote, Moore's Law simply by the way they do the arithmetic, namely by having multiple multiple processors per chip, which you get, which Moore's automatically falls out of Moore's Law, uh, or more, uh, uh, m or more microprocessors per chip. You know, Intel's uh, talking, I don't know, 64, 80, some large number of, of micro, micros uh, per, per chip. And, uh, you know, that's okay as long as somebody can figure out a programming model. But for the last, <laughs> That two decades, uh, well, uh, we've been struggling with how the hell do you program these machines? In fact, I, uh, when I was at NSF, the, the one piece I had was, was we want to work on parallelism. Well, it never got worked on. I mean, we, uh, this was 19, uh, 1986, 88, 20 years later, and and I put some very dire numbers on there, like, well, we'll get, I'll be happy if we get to 1,000 in, in 10, 10 or 15 years. Well, we are barely at 1,000 for kind of, kind of the applications that we have with multiple, multiple, uh, uh, with clusters of, of interconnected computers because we haven't really, well, we've worked the programming problem but it's we've settled on the lowest possible uh, common denominator of of MPI to do that, uh, and so I don't. I think that's the that's the place where we have a huge amount of of, uh, of challenge and still opportunity to, today uh, by being able to exploit those. Um, the other thing that has to happen is that all the components have to have to evolve at the same rate. So storage has to evolve or has evolved and it's been at, uh, uh, literally at 100% a year for the last uh, decade. So if you look back a decade, you were buying 100, 100 megabyte uh, drives a decade ago. Now you now those are 100 gigabyte uh, drives in, in, in things like uh, uh, 
uh, this. And, and then the, the uh, terabyte drive has just been introduced. So, so with speed, with uh, transistor density, with memory, all of these things have to go up at the, at the same time. This is going back to a little, going back a bit. This is the, uh, uh, the price decline of the 12-bit machines and then the introduction of, of uh, the first 16-bit uh, uh, machine here and, uh, and how these guys were really tracking, uh, tracking a, a more of a, a learning curve uh, price decline uh, as opposed to something that's uh, uh, a new class. This, this is a uh, graph that d uh, d from Dave Culler, that, but he credits me with at least the, the loss, and that is that these are, these are the, uh, I think, the best representation of what is uh, the introduction of computer classes. So first computers were room-based. Here's a picture of a of whirlwind at MIT in 1953. It was a building. And uh, then mainframes in 64, and it was sort of a room. We reduced that so that with many computers to sort of a couple of uh, washing machine size. Workstations came in. These are all coming in at roughly 10x difference in, in, in price. And then certainly the PDA, uh, PDA coming in, and then he was using that to illustrate the, the moat as coming in uh, at whatever, you know, moats will, moats will ultimately settle on maybe a dollar or less per, but uh, once, once the applications uh, are formed to take on. But in fact, so what's happening here, our new computer classes are, are uh, uh, forming he says log of people per computer, but it's also log uh, log of, uh, of the price of the machine. Something has happened in the last few, uh, I'd say since 90, 90, for the last decade, what's happened is really scalable computers have come in and are sort of wiping everything out. There's sort of, it's a kind of a winner take all uh, with now let's build them out of of uh, of the smallest common, smallest component we can, namely a PC, and put those together. It turns out that Jim Gray and I got together in in fact Jim gave a talk here in 1994 uh, on a thing we call Snap, and we said because we Jim had Jim had worked at Deck. I had he worked after I had left. Uh, but Jim and I decided that we we shared the same religion, and the religion is that everything is going to be built out of of PCs, uh, and that 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 you're simply going to put as many of those together, and that that's that was going to be the the machine structure that was going to take everything. And so we defined a thing called SNAP, which is scalable networks and platforms. Uh, at the time, we said it was going to be ATM connecting all of those because ATM would be a long, long distance and it looked okay. But in, you know, but we forgot the phone company was involved with ATM, and any time the phone company's involved, it's going to get screwed up. But, uh, 
Yeah. Five minutes? Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll just finish this little section. And uh, so anyway, Jim and I got together with the with our religion, and, and of course, like any religion, we don't like anybody else's religion. I had just come off of a thirty uh, from nineteen sixty with the PDP six to I'd say not, yeah thirty thirty years of having being in the multiprocessor religion. I gave it up in in ninety. 94, 95, saying it's hopeless. Uh, it's just too hard making multiprocessors uh, that can scale. So I got it. I wanted to, I wanted my machines to scale, and and so uh, we determined that that was hopeless, and uh, we went to scale. To the only way to scale is to use computers and to scale scale at that level. And then lo and behold, if you look at at what's today, we're back to where we were. This is a the large server. You know, I don't know that we've got any that have got a million processors in there yet, but there's certainly some that are out there with 100,000 uh, computers, processors, um, as a single machine. So, looks almost exactly like the BARDA building that MIT that I showed in that first picture, uh, which had. It looked like a telephone exchange with all of those racks and racks <coughs> flip-flops. So a flip-flop was, in, the, in that machine, a flip-flop was this big. And you can see one, and a bit slice was, went, went off with four or five bits, went from floor to ceiling. You can see one of those at the Computer History Museum. But now, these machines, we're building buildings around them. And where do you locate them? You can locate them near where you get cheap power. Uh, you know, whether so you look for ga natural gas, whatever. In fact, I've had proposals. Where do we want to have one? Could we put a supercomputer in Perth, uh, because Perth, Australia, because there's a lot of natural gas there, and some of the gas friends know about. Uh, say, how about putting our machines in in Perth? Hey, Gordon. Yeah. You know, Google's uh, server farm in the Dallas, Oregon, is actually on the site of a former aluminum plant. <laughs> right, sounds right. So they, they've the transformers are already in place, and uh, and these guys uh, all take about anywhere from five to uh, ten megawatts to to power them and and the like. So anyway, we're back to the bill. Uh, the computer is the building, uh, and and in fact, so scalable computers. So you say, what's happened? We basically have wiped out mainframes. We've wiped out mini computers. Uh, and uh, this is kind of the way we've decided to build build our computers of, as of today. So anyway, let's take a little, take a little break, and then I'll continue on this. Great. So I uh, so anyway, this is sort of what we've sort of we've settled on as the architecture and how that had gotten represented. How Jim and I had represented it in '96 was, in fact, we saw. Uh, what had been these sort of price bands, uh, PCs uh, above $1,000 uh, to $2,000 or $3,000, uh, workstations here, which have actually gotten squeezed out. And what do you mean workstations? What are those? Uh, many computers that were at the multiple uh, multiple thousands going up to 100000 or so 
mainframes up in this band. So I had seen that this had been my canonical price band kind of, of set of architect of structures. And then in uh, in the 90s, we saw basically this architecture coming in and and basically overtaking all of those other uh, other architectures. Okay, here's here's what I I'm claiming is my law about computer classes, namely that the technology improvements, particularly Moore's law, but also disks and everything else, uh, allows two evolutionary paths for computers. One is at this constant price and increased performance. Namely, you get uh, you get more, but you pay about the same. And then the other one, which is the interesting one, is this new new class uh, forming. Namely, you take a whatever you can in performance, you decrease the cost by some factor, like hopefully like 10x. That leads to a new new structure, a new computer. Uh, in 60, uh, in, in about mid 70s, I sort of plotted it like this, which is in fact uh, it show, showing these two evolutionary paths uh, that creates created these machines. Uh, these are taken from the book uh, uh, on uh, uh, either High Tech Ventures or I think these came from from the book by uh, that we wrote on the about the deck computers and then showing again these price uh, different constant price price computers staying constant price and then uh, these are constant performance so we're seeing new platforms forming as you come down in uh, down in price uh, if you look at the numbers why that ha has to happen is that it's kind of a conspiracy uh, among marketing engineers uh, and customers namely if you ask a customer if you ask your current customer what they want they want another machine at about that same price because their overheads all been established and they want to get more productivity out of it but uh, the thing that you're after is really uh, if you just simply say well I'll give it to you at a uh, tenth of price that doesn't really do very much for them from a productivity productivity standpoint because it says you mean well I can buy this your new machine at a tenth of price but I still have the old software I've still got to maintain everything and things really haven't changed a, a great deal so a couple of things are going on here this price performance issue is is happening and uh, and we're entering new new price bands uh, one of the things that uh, I've I've tracked it over time if you look at that then there's uh, you, car prices are like that. Transportation uh, is like that from everything from shoes to ICBMs. Uh, French restaurants, this is data I took in 95, uh, which was that uh, this is some function of ambience and location times $25 times 1.5 raised to the number of Michelin stars in a restaurant. Uh, is uh, forms a new price class. So if you don't believe me, go rate, go uh, go go to a three-star restaurant and see how much you pay in that. But these these numbers are all are all changed a bit. But in fact, that's the basic I, idea of of the price class. So we form these different uh, price bands 
whether it's cars or, or restaurants or, or what. Um, uh, yeah. Question at UW. So the, you were talking about the conspiracy sort of inside the industry, and you were talking about, well, if my computer costs, you know, one-tenth, uh, but it only does the same thing your old one does, there's sort of no reason to migrate. How has that changed now since the operating costs of computers are often dominating with power and data centers rather than the fixed cost of just buying a computer? Well, I think all that will happen is that, you know, people, uh, there's been more standardization of the platform. Uh, and so probably if you can get, if your operating costs can be decreased, well, then you go, bu then you go do that. Uh, you know, things like virtual, virtualization, that allows you to have less computers and to have, uh, and to do better, uh, spreading of, uh, spreading of a load. So those things are all, all going for operational costs. Uh, uh, so, you know, I, I think, I think for a given established, uh, established price, then people, people will do, uh, do what they 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 can to get the next next increment in power uh, out of that. Whether it's whether it's more I/O, more disk capacity, or or what have you, to uh, uh, to take advantage of the the le what they have in, invested in the, in the legacy, legacy software or, or or legacy data, most likely. Um, the other thing about new co computer classes, so is essentially we have several components to a class. Namely, it's a new platform. That is, an, to have a new class, I think you have to have a new platform. That is something that really is uh, dramatically different. Not not just another uh, another version of uh, an operating system. It, I, I'm talking about something that's not just subject to the usual learning curve of of continual price decline that you get by more volume, which we see in uh, which we see in ordinary PCs. That those those have come down in, in price, but it really has to have these other components. That is, it has to have a new interface to something, humans or or part of the physical world. It has to have a new networking or interconnect structure. How it's put together. It has to have new applications, and it has to have, uh, and ultimately the result of all that is will be new, new industries will form from that. That's been true of minis. It's true of workstations. It was true of uh, of, of micros. Uh, PCs have been that way, and now PDAs formed in that regard. PDAs and then merging with cell phones, and then I'm now predicating that. That this is uh, this is the new platform. In fact, we've uh, got a bet uh, at uh, uh, out. No one will take me up on it. Uh, uh, that the that the uh, uh, this is the Microsoft terminology. Small small form factor devices, and I I had by uh, had called them cell phone sized devices are going to, to overtake uh, the PC as the dominant. Uh, dominant platform, certainly a, a, for the world. And the question is, how far can those things go in terms of doing what the PC does? Uh, the other class that I think is forming is this uh, sensor modes class that, in fact, of uh, that allows the ubiquity of, of wirelessness. 
And that's one that's really, uh, it's now in its formative stages. Uh, we've, got, we've got the, uh, uh, the dust networks that came from, came from Berkeley. Uh, David Culler's got a, a company that's uh, uh, predicated, predicated on, um, on sensors. Uh, Crossbow has been uh, in existence. Uh, for uh, over a decade now, but really that had come from a sensor point of view. The other guys have come from a wireless wireless point of view. Um, and then what's going to happen there, I do not know, because this, it has to be an issue of standards. And I think the standards are just now beginning. There's a thing called Zigbee uh, that the uh, company called Ember on the East Coast has been driving <coughs> other companies. There are X15.4 uh, radios, um, part of that. But then there's this other thing that's really intriguing. It's called uh, uh, Wi-Fi. That is uh, uh, 802.11. Uh, and there's an Australian company that's got an absolutely gorgeous chip. And so you've got to ask, why do I want to invent another plat another network when I've got a I've got I'm building this great infrastructure now called Wi-Fi uh, for uh, ubiquitously connecting everything. But the Zigbee guys are saying, oh, it's all going to be wireless into a home. We're going to wire our thing with a Zigbee net. Uh, and I say, wait a minute, I've already got 15.4 uh, in my home. Why do I don't want another net? I'll I'll have my bathroom scales connect to the 15.4 that's or or to uh, Ethernet that's already there. So anyway, these are the these are all the earmarks of a class. Uh, so you know you've got something new when you see new kinds of application, new uses uh, that we're seeing. I mean, and I put the iPod and and the Zune or Zuni or whatever the Microsoft device is that <laughs> came out. Uh, anyway, I have, I have to wait until I get mine. Uh, you know, I've been a steadfast uh, uh, holdout for uh, uh, not having an iPod, and so I'll wait. I'll wait for our product. Uh, but uh, anyway, those are uh, those are all. Uh, kinds of things that I think uh, allow you to say the, you've got a new new computer class, and then you take off on that that basis. Uh, by the way, the one of the classes that an intermediate class that formed here was was our friends uh, uh, with the World Wide Web. So we the PC was in uh, was in came in in the 80s, uh, 85 to 95 or so. But then that really kicked in to a new platform with the uh, with the introduction of the world of uh, the World Wide Web, where where the PC was just the uh, was just a component in in that. Gordon, yeah. a question from Washington. Um, yeah. Would you consider the transition from command line interface to graphical user interface sufficient to constitute a new class? Absolutely. That was this was back a slide I didn't put in, which was PCs. That the WIMP was a, WIMP totally changed changed from what had been a command line uh, terminal uh, interface uh, to really constitute a new new class, new set of users, new applications, and so on. Just as I consider this to be a new class. 
and lo and behold, they are separated in the in the order of about uh, 12 years uh, between uh, between the classes. Here are some of the uh, 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 price tier things that have uh, have come come into being, and so that varies from a dollar up to uh, uh, sort of a hundred million dollars uh, for these uh, for the various large centers. Um, the other another way of looking at it is this sort of if you look at this sort of pyramid of of machines that there will be one computer some there is one computer today that is the is the largest computer I don't know what it's probably probably Google has it or some somebody has it uh, which has got uh, 100,000 uh, processors in it um, <coughs> makes more power can compute more has more data than any other machine you go down this sort of pyramid and you form uh, computers being formed like this with uh, uh, ten thousands of corporate environments where you've got thousand node kinds of machines and then if you go into your home wire typical home networks are maybe five to ten uh, then you get into the small form factor devices and we'll here we've got a few billion of those in existence today uh, or that that are out there that potentially will evolve when when you say the cell phone will ultimately take all and then this ubiquity land, there will actually be tr trillions there where everything be, uh, now uh, gets uh, electrified uh, and uh, takes on that uh, takes on that role. Um, if you uh, I, let me s say just kind of what happened is that the in industry as it uh, as it hap evolved. Uh, as you looked at it in 1982, we had a sort of a, a vertically integrated industry of, of, of semi, from semiconductors to through processors to computers and uh, on to even solutions. Although IBM was the only one that really had had solutions there, and then that moved to uh, to this kind of an industry, uh, disintegrated industry in uh, in the mid 80s. Uh, with standards taking on, so that in fact this was a, uh, a horizontal industry or a, or a disintegrated industry, where each layer is now uh, kind of a sub-industry by it by itself. So anyway, that's that's what seems to happen in a class. So once a class is established, then you start to let that evolve. Uh, the these subclasses will or subcomponents will. Will come in, uh, come in, and uh, and take over. So I'm um, uh, kind of that's the part end of the of the stuff on this computer class formation. I hope I've convinced you that that's how they, what they are, how they form, why they form, what's the economics behind them, and what they're all all about. And so you can watch for them because uh, right now we're looking for the next one. I mean it's. Uh, uh, kind of like particle physics, uh, but you only see it a decade or so after after they've happened. Uh, now I want to go quickly over the VAX, the VAX strategy, how that came into existence, how it got deck up to number two, and then that'll uh, put it, uh, put us in uh, in uh, time for 
why that was just made debt go up and now now everything that goes up may have to come down. Um, so here we are. When we first left the PDP-11, we got got to VAX, and that was in uh, uh, it was introduced in 1977. 19, uh, uh, and uh, uh, that we said before, it's the virtual address. Uh, extension to the PDP-11. Uh, in some sense, it was a good, a good time and a bad time because it was four or five years too early to do risk because risk required having a very fast uh, memory for cash memory, uh, large, larger cash memory. Uh, so it really was the last of the SIS computers. Uh, it was a computer that, in fact, had every instruction that that you could imagine. We had uh, uh, it, um, it. It did, it had a cobalt. There was a cobalt machine in there, so it compiled. Uh, you basically compiled cobalt uh, almost one to one as an instruction. Uh, the poly instruction. The poly polynomial evaluation instruction was. In, I just forgot about that. There was a uh, a uh, Q and NQ instruction in there. Put it put a thing on a Q. Uh, so it was a very uh, uh, the ultimate in uh, instruction sets, uh, and that was at a time when the technology was all set to do that because it uh, had the, had you know the the uh, VAX uh, VAX 11 uh, the 780 had a I think an 80-bit microprogram word and uh, uh, and it was uh, it was uh, about six times faster than the outside machine which was constra constrained by by memory um, the the VAX came in this was we started the project on the first of April in 75. Uh, I was leading the group, uh, Dave Cutler, uh, who was, uh, Dave Cutler has done more, has, has, has probably written more software for more machines that, than any, anyone I know. Namely, he, he had done the, the RSX11M operating system. He, did, he was responsible for VMS, and then he went to Microsoft and did uh, NT. And then recently he got NT uh, uh, running at the, on a, with 64 bits. So basically, uh, almost everything we people compute on, I uh, say Dave has had a hand in. Certainly more than anyone in uh, more than any, anyone that, that I know of. And I think this is from uh, this is from a blue, the blue book that we had. Uh, we, so we had a, a little working group, and this was a six-person working group, and that's sort of we met met in one we got <coughs> in one corner of the the deck mill, and uh, and uh, this is what I had written about the PDP-11, and basically it said, uh, uh, gee, in 1969, uh, uh, you know. We really had screwed up because we ran out of address bits. Uh, really, only six years after uh, after we, after we had introduced the uh, PDP-11. And now, 
It turns out there's an article in Q Magazine this month that I recommend you all read. This is on, if you're into architecture, this is John Mashey, and it and, he, and it's on. It's called the struggle or something like that, the long slow march to 64 bits, and it's a wonderful article about all of the. Uh, thing and they, I think it leads with, with my quote. This was from a paper that I had uh, had uh, written. Uh, There's only one mistake that can be made in computer design that is difficult to recover from: not providing enough address bits for memory <laughs> and memory management. And so the PDP-11 followed that that tradition. We extended it several ways. Vax. VAX 11 was compatible with that. There was a PDP 11 instruction set built in, and there was a mode, and you could go run there, which, by the way, turned out to be very valuable because that was how we brought all the software. We had all the software running immediately uh, on PDP 11s, and that, that came right over uh, Fortran and, and uh, all the utilities. Um, and uh, and so it was a kind of a shame. Well, we screwed that one up. Uh, and then about a decade later, why Alpha had to be created, uh, and that was introduced in '90. Um, the interesting thing was, did we did we know what was going to happen? And this is a, this is from 19 March 1975, uh, when I was doing the planning for this, and uh, this. Here's a much better version of that, which is essentially this says, these are different system <laughs> price. I had gotten I had gotten all of the pricing and evolution of computer prices for down to a single variable, the price of a bit, and uh, and it was simply how much memory you had, and this was the the planning model. So and the amount of memory a machine had determined what it would be used for. And so in looking at this, this is one of these things of you look at it and you say, well, we've got this, this computer here that's, uh, that has uh, a megabyte, and gee, that would have been uh, uh, a $10 million computer. But when we, we were here, we had a million dollar machine at this, at this price level, but if you took if you ran that out uh, to 2,000, oh my God, that's going to be a $10,000 computer. What are we going to do? And it was one of these things. If you look at the look at you run these exponentials out and you say, oh my God, what is going to happen? So we knew uh, we knew something big was going to happen and how. Uh, it wasn't clear exactly how it was all going to play out, but what we did know that the price was going to be declining at this very rapid, rapid rate. And so machines that it, these our old friends, many many computers that we knew and loved in the uh, that were selling for maybe ten thousand dollars in uh, in '78. Uh, here, so here's when it was introduced. So machines that were in this price price band were suddenly down in 90 they were going to be selling for a factor of 15 lower. What are you going to do about markup? How is that all going to what's going to be the effect of these tremendous price declines that, that we're going to, going to see? Um, so all we could say is 
make sure we put enough address bits in there so that we can exploit that uh, to, uh, to a certain extent. Um, the, uh, the kind of um, this is this is the beginning of, of when I say the beginning of when the VAC, VAC strategy was put in place and how we viewed it was all that VAX was all going to take off and this was a strategy that I had uh, come up with while scuba diving for three weeks in Tahiti in uh, 19 uh, in the uh, summer of 77 I came back from that I said we've got to scrap all the all the things we're doing and we're just going to go to a single architecture uh, sound familiar all the wood behind one arrow uh, and we're going to have a we're going to make vax in different price bands and uh, the other thing that's, that's different than the idea that came from the 360, 360 put them all different <coughs> kinds of, they were still all mainframes, they were all used the same way. In this case, it was really, uh, I, the way the architecture was described was in a form of a, an E. That is, we were going to have a, uh, a clusters here, so these were all kind of cluster here. So we weren't going to make mainframes, but we we're going to make the biggest computer we could make uh, that was sort of right, right from a price performance standpoint. And we were going to cluster those together. And that, that was the idea of the VAX cluster. So, so that was at the top level. This was how we were going to go after IBM, which was, ah, don't make mainframes. Make just make big computers and put them together <coughs> in modules. Then we had our old good old friends, the minis here that were going to be put together here. They're going to be distributed throughout. These are going to be distributed minis, and that, you put them in closet, you put them in a, in a labs or whatever. And then turned out we had a network interconnect that that connected all of this stuff. And this was so. We needed a way to connect all those together. That was called the network interconnect. So after now, I came back and posited this whole thing. And then, then down here, we've got personal computers and personal VACs. We're going to use PCs until we got VACs and workstations at that level. So it was a three-tier architecture, which allowed you to have mainframe kind of capacity at the high end. Uh, minis, distributed minis in the middle, and then PCs fully distributed at the and workstations at the low end, and that those were all going to be connected, uh, uh, interconnected, so you could move jobs anywhere, do anything, uh, any place you wanted. We had very good networking technology called DECnet at the time. IP hadn't quite come in as the, the standard, but that was not, it turned out not to be a big deal when we had to make that switch. But the, but the issue was compatibility. You could take a job here and run it anywhere in that, in that whole, uh, in that whole hierarchy. <coughs> uh, it was like the IBM announcement, uh, 1964 announcement, where they, uh, they decided to have one architecture throughout their whole product line, with a, with a few outliers. They had other other machine, smaller uh, machine machine set of, of outliers too. But that was the basic idea. 
And uh, I have a question from you, Doug. Yeah. Um, I ran one of these big environments back around 1988, and um, by way of kind of background, we got a big IBM mainframe shop in the same location. And the way that IBM tackled this was with a system called Sysplex, where you can move around batch jobs between processors. It was big and complicated and cumbersome. And if we went over to our deck side, we had this beautiful decknet environment that everybody loved. Um, sometime around that same era, Sun came out with the TCP suite and said, well, here's this personal workstation you could plop on your desk. And we would take them to our deck machine room and say, well, we can do the same thing with this beautiful microvax and later on the vax station. And it always came to mind, how come DEC didn't seize the microvax and vax station and compete head-on with Sun uh, and, and probably could have owned that whole industry? That, that, that whole thing is such a... That's part of the tragic, tragic tale of, uh, of DEC. It really, uh, you know, because our, big pro our biggest problem there was to get that, that, the VAX down in price as quickly as we could, and we did. Uh, but that was at a time, I had left, I'd had a heart attack in 83, by the way. And so I said, gee, this, maybe this job is too stressful for me. And, uh, you know, I don't think I want to give up my life for the, for the company. And, uh, whether it was stress or not, but anyway, uh, Ken and I uh, always had, were, uh, probably I was the only one who could really argue, or did argue with Ken, and I, I decided it really had taken a toll on my body, and I really wasn't up to uh, doing much more of that. But Ken was much, I was much more of do what's right and put everything on that and just go for it. And Ken was, well, you know, we got all these different, you know, there's a workstation. Gee, Sun is out there. We need a workstation. And lo and behold, you go into deck engineering. There was 6,000 engineers at deck. Oh, you want a workstation? Oh, I happen to have a workstation here for you. It's runs MIPS. And so we've got that. Oh, I've got a PC workstation. And so everybody had a solution. And deck only, by, at 19, in 1988, they had introduced seven different platforms. So we had gone from a, a, a workstation, a single platform, notice, compute anywhere without any reprogramming or anything in a distributed system across this whole hierarchy to, oh, you want PCs? We got those PCs. You want this version of Unix? We got a version of Unix that does that. You know, DEC was, you know, not that I didn't, by the way, not that I didn't acknowledge Unix because in the six people that were part of that, we only, we allowed one marketing, we had, I think we had three marketing guys, they could come in every two weeks and talk to us. Uh, and then the other thing is we only allowed, we only had one customer we talked to, and that was Ken Thompson. He said, how does it run on, how, is it, what do you need to run Unix on it? And so that was fundamentally our marketing input. I mean, if these guys who'd built, been building computers for a long time, didn't know how to build a computer or what they did, why, you know, uh, customer input's not going to help us. But um, anyway, we, um, uh, you know, th the biggest problem there was was the fact that, that Ken, Ken had a philosophy of we put every, we give people all these choices, not understanding the fact that every damn choice was confusing to the sales guys, it was confusing to the customer, and above all, it was very expensive to maintain. 
every platform you put out, uh, you know, has a huge cost to to keep the uh, things. Uh, 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 so, Gordon, this is Ed. Two two points I'd add. One is I remember what, at one point early on, Deck had three indistinguishable PCs. There was the rainbow and the this and the that. And that was absolutely, and that was uh, that was absolute classic. And, and the way. And, the way somebody explained this to me was nobody likes to kill puppies. That is, you would have competing people with competing platforms, and then nobody, somebody really needed to shoot two of them, and that would <laughs> happen. No, that, there was that. There was the wait. Those were those were there was the there was the one which was the evolution, and that was the the PDP PDP eight, and that there was some software. It was used for word processing. I almost I think of it as that was the typewriter, and so in a sense that one that to the extent that we ran in a divisional sense we ran the PDP-8 that way. The PDP-8 was long obsolete at that point, but yet we we had you know a small engineering crew we could introduce the things very cheaply, and in fact people people continued to buy them as in this case as typewriters. I uh, almost don't count that, but the the main the main one the the uh, crawl or whatever yeah the PDP 11 we had it had a beautiful bus did all the things that the IBM uh, should have done, but would we allow anybody to connect to it? Would we publish the bus? Absolutely not. People might add stuff onto it uh, the way they did on the on the on the uh, on the uh, PC, and then yet we had in the in the case of the PC having the PC there, we had the uh, we had an advocate. In fact, we, including myself, of gee, this thing may just take off, and it's going to be a standards and a pricing uh, issue if that happens. It's manufacturing and it's standards, and you just got to be there uh, with with that at the time. So. We, you know, so if I killed anything, I would, have, I would have not bothered with the 11 at that point. Yeah. So one other comment is, I remember that DEC made a huge number of concessions to try and get DARPA to choose VMS as its operating systems platform instead of <coughs> Unix, what became Berkeley Unix. And, and history would have been very different if that had happened. Right. And, I, and uh, that whole story, uh, you know, in terms of... of, of how that was, uh, you know, botched overall. I mean, Sheridan. Uh, I'm not going to get in. Sheridan has the story of De uh, of Deck saying of Ken saying no. Uh, we were given. We had the opportunity to have been given Unix from AT&T because they said, "Gee, we make telephones. What are we doing with this piece of uh, operating system?" And uh, so apparently, Deck had the uh, had the. Uh, option of tape picking that up and didn't uh, didn't do it, but on the other hand, it's feeling about standards at the time. I don't know that it could have could have dealt with it. It the point is it didn't understand the issue of standards. The imp I'd say the other thing about the VAC strategy here that really one of the main things that came out of this was the uh, NI, which is called Ethernet, and we made the deal with because uh, I had. You know, I drew this thing on the board. We knew that lo local area networks were going to be important. There weren't any local area networks out other than a few. Uh, well, there's ArcNet, uh, Xerox Park had their a three megabit network. 
And so we desperately needed a network. So we went off, and uh, lo and behold, uh, Bob Met Metcalf had just escaped from Park and came to us and said, "Hey, psst, would you like to have a would you like to have an Ethernet?" And we said. Yeah, that looks pretty good because to me it looked just like a unibus where you have a lot of things and you hang, hang, uh, you hang uh, different nodes on on the uh, on all of the uh, on all the on this long on this two and a half meter two and a half kilometer uh, piece of wire. Uh, sure, we want to do that, and uh, and during that process we made the deal with uh, with Intel uh, with uh, DEC with uh, Xerox and. Uh, and uh, and Intel. Uh, the interesting thing on the Intel thing, uh, it was the first use of the picture phone meeting service I had, which is I went to a uh, net, to a room in Boston. Uh, Ed uh, Phil Kaufman went to a room in San Francisco. We shook hands. Yeah, we're going to do the Ethernet deal uh, with one another. Uh, and the and then uh, on the same kind of thing, uh, Ed um, uh, Dave Liddell came to deck, and uh, I remember. And I unfortunately, in all the stuff I documents I can't find. I can't find the document where I mean we had come. We had uh, part, Xerox had come and said, "Gee, we want to do." ETH. Now it would be a good idea if we get together on Ethernet as a standard, and so they were about to walk out the door, and I said, "Oh, I, I hadn't been part of the meeting." And they said, "What, what are you going to?" Uh, uh, I said, "Okay, what are we going to do?" He said, "Well, we've got to get back to our management and blah 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 and do all this stuff." I said, "What do you need?" He said, "We need a letter from Deck saying, let's do the deal." So I said, what do you want it to say? And I sat down at a word processor and typed the thing. I said, here's the letter. Take it, take it to your commander, and let's get the thing going. And so that was, that, that was the first thing that had kicked it off. We included, Zip, we included Intel after that because we wanted somebody to make some chips. Um, and then um, that, that was the origin of it. Intel used to come back to us every uh, every three months or so and say, gee, Olivetti wants to be part of this whole consortium uh, and or so-and-so wants to be part. And I said, no way. We've got eight guys built doing the standard. I don't even go and talk to them. So if you think I'm going to let Olivetti come in and try to say what's going to be in there, we had a, and then uh, I got a call from the chairman of uh, ICL one Saturday night and, I mean, and he had he said, "Hey, I can bring in Europe uh, if you'll just uh, have a, uh, a let, uh, uh, open your kimono a little bit." And I said, "Come on over." And he was uh, he brought uh, brought brought several technical guys over. We agreed that uh, that this was being done in the right way. They added a couple bits here or there, or whatever. <coughs> Got this, and then we got this. Basically, it was the small group of people did the standard. We had a working prototype, and then we put put the blue book out and said, "This is what the standard was." We announced it at a uh, at the World Trade Center in February of 1982. 
Liddell, Bob Noyce, and I were the were on the program and made the announcement. And uh, I remember uh, 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 someone from Business Week asking, "Well, what about Wang Band? Wang Wang was." Uh, they're going to use a cable TV uh, thing for their local area network. And I said, well, you know, I don't know who's got much cable TV in most corporations or, or universities or organizations. And then uh, he had, and then uh, I said, well, the problem with Wang Band is think of it like a, think of a cable TV as like a, 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 a piping system for a city. You got sewage, you got water, and you got gas. And now, in principle, we can put them all during in one pipe. Right. But in fact, sorting them out is the tricky part. And so, uh, I think that got quoted in Business Week, uh, which is where. <laughs> but it's just a bad idea. And so, I think we're uh, we're, we're finally getting there with it. But uh, anyway, so this was. This is what uh, the VAC strategy was sort of in. You know, DEC had had a market cap that had been growing uh, nicely. This was the market value. Um, and this is really the VAC strategy kicks in uh, during this period and then uh, reached a peak and then uh, started uh, a, de uh, a decline. Ken was let, let go of the company in 92. And then two double. That's when Palmer took over, and it took him about uh, six, eight years to get sell it to Compaq or to be acquired by Compaq, and then Compaq, uh, then HP acquired Compaq. But anyway, that that's kind of the, at least from that point of view, what happened. What what really happened at the sort of in that same era? Let's look at this. This is a. Uh, I had just left DEC in 83, and uh, we were going to start a, start a little company. Uh, that's a different story. Don't even want to go there. Uh, but uh, this is a slide that I, I put together when I got out there, and I said, this is what startups are looking like at this point in time. Uh, basically, there's, there's this, if your frustration is greater than the reward and your greed is greater than fear, then you start a then you begin a company. So you get a PC and a spreadsheet. If you've got a system company, then you write a beat the you beat the, beat the VAX plan, and you write the plan. You get money, and then uh, then you exit. You, oh, then you exit the job, and you start. <laughs> the, uh, so there there was a bit of morality in this whole thing. Of most people were starting companies right on the job with their the other. And then here's the uh, essence of it. You basically you get a, a Unix license, some developers, some Vax. You get a Vax to do all the development on, uh, some development tools. You build a product and so on. You sell it uh, for 100 times the sales, and then you take that money and become a venture capitalist. So anyway, that was my, this was done in 84, 85 when I said, you know, what are you doing? I said, well, this is what the market is all about. It's about standard. It's about Unix. It's about these licenses. You're going you're gonna to go out and build these, build these com computers. And this is kind of, and if you were, if, the, if you were doing PCs, it was even easier than that because uh, you had, you assembled it in your dorm room. And uh, Michael Dell, I don't think, did anything other than plug uh, at most, put uh, probably never did any soldering. I would guess. I think they were all 
you could by then you could plug everything together. But anyway, that was the that was the era. That was what's happening in the in the 80s when when Unix was going, workstations were going, when Sun was formed, when uh, when the PC was taking off, and so on. Um, this is a piece of technology that this is a really important piece of technology. This this set of curves here is really the, what was happening with with the transition. Namely, here you got TTL. Beck was making uh, computers with TTL at the time. IBM, Hitachi, Fujitsu, uh, NEC, uh, CDC were all making uh, ECL technology. So you had a factor of three or four difference in in performance. You had them on the same slope. Then suddenly you've got this thing called CMOS coming in. See, see here's the 68K coming in. Well, I'm not worried about that because look how she's actually factor three or four cheap, uh, lower price at, uh, than our lower performance. These are performance in VAX units. Uh, that's not important. But what was important that this was on a on a slope that ultimately was going to take over uh, overtake uh, TTL, and that's what happened. Uh, and a lot of people were. Uh, were wiped out in this whole thing. I, when I, in in fact, 1980, it was 1980. About this time, I visited a, I visited the, we had, we were on good terms with Control Data. They asked me to come and give a talk. I was I I was there as, from NSF. They said, we're here, look at our new mainframe, and they opened up this uh, this. Big bay of stuff. I think it may be a dual processor or something like that. All echo, uh, discre almost discrete uh, technology. And they said, "I said, well, how fast is it?" And they said, "Oh, you know, three mips or some damn thing like that." And I said, "You're toast. You absolutely are toast." Uh, you realize that I can go buy a CMOS chip that will outperform all of these racks and racks of stuff. And, and they were toast. Uh, <laughs> but, but the, you know, it's really kind of pathetic because they were sort of sitting up there in the snow and cold and hadn't really seen what, what, what was going on in sunny, sunny California and what was going on with CMOS. Um, Almost as pathetic, or no, I'd say not almost. Far more pathetic was what Ken did in terms of the same same thing was uh, in this machine here. This is the uh, 9000. Uh, this was the deck mainframe. That was going to come in, and sure enough, it was going to take over mainframe. It had mainframe capacity. It had all those capabilities. The only problem was CMOS was just about as good, or was as good when it finally all the smoke cleared, and and really what happened there? Deck spent three billion dollars building an Echel mainframe at a point when CMOS had fundamentally wiped it out. Uh, and the only reason I'll quote this, uh, is, uh, make this comment, is that that in fact uh, in Ed Shine's book, that you, which you have a reference. Is that we? It's not a here. Apparently, not a hearsay, which is Ken had made some statement about some point in time, in here. Basically, he said, "You mean to say that 
that two-bay mainframe we just introduced uh, is no more powerful than the CMOS microvax that that we are microvax ship that we just uh, just introduced in workstation. And they said yes, and they were toast. Or Ken was very very soon toast. So the echo making the echo transition was a big deal. IBM had screwed the same same as did the same thing. Had gone too long on the thing. Uh, CDC was wiped out because of it, uh, and uh, uh, Fuji, although I think it would have been anyway, Fujitsu uh, uh, went too long. The only guy who I think who did something right there is the uh, NEC switched to CMOS very early <laughs> with their with their uh, high performance uh, machines, and they had mas mastered that, and they still still make the essentially the fastest supercomputers. So anyway, that's that whole set of things. The other thing that was happening here, this was a paper I had written in 1985, and I was predicating the world that all the world is going to be built on that structure. Namely, my good old friend, the, the, the Unibus, you're, and now instead of just one processor, you put multiple processors there, and then you put the memory uh, on that same bus, and then what? For the first time, nature is working in the right right way. Namely, with the cache cache memory there, you're able to filter uh, uh, filter or limit the number of of uh, requests that are needed to, to uh, primary memory. And so this this structure formed as I called it a multi. The name hasn't sticked, but in fact the structure has, and that's basically how we how we build all all of, uh, up to a point. These are this is kind of how we build all all computers today that are bigger than a single single processor. So it's a shared shared memory thing. Recall my religion was I am I only build multi processors, and that was from 1960 to to 95. And I built, a, worked on about 30 of them, and I thought this is the only way to build a computer because you got to have, you got to have a shared memory. But I gave up at that point. I said you can't have a shared memory; it doesn't scale. It's too expensive. Blah blah blah. Let's figure out how to program it, and we're still working on that problem. So anyway, this this structure came in. A lot of computers were formed there. Sun made their machines. This ultimately, all the guys who had made microprocessors were out there. These were all going right for the throat uh, of DEC. So DEC, DEC hadn't moved into this structure either at that, that point in time. And uh, that's, that, that tended to, to, to be another, another thing that happened there. So you know, kind of in summary then, uh, DEC had gone done right in transistors. They had survived. The IC 16-bit transition. They had survived being able to make VLSI. They were they had failed to embrace the PC. Uh, they had failed in this TTL and ECHL transition. They had spent too much money there, and therefore had missed the oppor opportunity and and to move into the right structure. And they certainly, when this thing came in, uh, in Ken's inimitable way, basically. Uh, he took that as an opportunity to go off and make a lot of computers. That's when, oh, you mean I can go 
get a Unix license and make you know two or three different versions of Unix. Uh, I can get a MIP, can, can sell the MIPS, MIPS system. And at that point, DEC had seven separate platforms. And that's a lot to maintain. Uh, you know, I, re I recall when Microsoft was able to go from Windows 95 into to NT, which to me was a miracle to get that down to a to a single single code, a single body of code, because this is it, these things are really hard to maintain. So there was a whole bunch of things that happened in terms of standardization, exploiting and exploiting the opportunities that Dex screwed up on. But then the other thing was probably as bad as all of that was they had opportunities here with the web in Alta Vista. They were first there. They had servers. They had clients. And that was a failure to exploit all that. That was the thing, in a sense, that was what got Sun into so much trouble. Because Sun went out, they looked at the deck stuff and said, wow, this is right. Uh, and uh, uh, oh, the chief uh, whoever, the chief technical officer of Sun today, uh, uh, whose name I forget, basically took, looked at that, said, that's what we're going to do. They did that and, and then simply out, out marketed deck. Is that Papadopoulos? No, no, it was before I mean, it's, uh, no, uh, he was in charge of the networking. Um, John Gage. John, John. I didn't know John did that. We all know John. I just didn't know he. Did yeah, he got he got the design from um, from yeah, from Deck had all of those. He lives in Berkeley down there. Yeah, but anyway, uh, and so John, so John was able. That was all useful and exploit and that and Sun exploited that beautifully. Now the that's the good news. The bad news was they sold a lot of refrigerators. The, the normal mic, uh, the normal deck, what had been, it would have been a deck with, you know, these very large server, servers thing. And people, I was, it was amazing, you know, a startup would say, well, we need a million dollars to buy a Sun server. But you don't have any clients, you know, you don't have any traffic. Why? Well, we're going to get traffic. Oh, and they were getting Oracle, they were doing all this, uh, all these other things, uh, but then that didn't, uh, that was uh, one of the things. So I'd say decks, decks, deck not not doing that. And then deck had a lot of other opportunities, like printers. They were stronger than HP at a uh, in the early 80s. Printers. They had the whole printer market. They had the uh, terminal printing terminal market, for example. They had the first uh, laser printer uh, as a computer peripheral. Although Park had certainly built. Uh, one of the first uh, uh, Park had built the first laser printer. Sorry, Apple, you had built the Apple Laser Writer preceded Dex laser printers, didn't it? It might have. They were probably used the same engine. Yeah, I think that's right. You're right. I think the main thing that uh, I, one of the things I had done uh, was with Forrest when Forrest had established the. Uh, the uh, world. Uh, we went to Adobe. To I think Adobe was just starting up and said, "Gee, make will you will you make that for us?" And so they basically put uh, put post. I think PostScript in. Yeah. in, in 80, I was there at 85 the day they released this um, Apple, and 
Apple actually, when they were a startup, Apple actually invested in Adobe and, and yeah. quite well with the shares that they held. You guys used to do a lot of work on disk drives too. That was a big part of DEC. Oh, DEC, DEC had a had a huge disk disk drive, and they had uh, had a very high, had a high performance uh, tape. And I think the tape is still uh, that tape remnants of the tape business are still still there in a different form. So anyway, we're back to well. That's really the sequence. There is really fail is really this. Quadruple whammy that happened in uh, starting in ninety in eighty three that uh, that while Deck was on the Vax ramp they sort of the nice thing about the Vax strategy is you didn't have to think the whole company was behind it it was so simple and they didn't think that was <laughs> that was the problem and then the other thing is this failure to exploit what you have so uh, there's you know, in a, in a nutshell, that's kind of it. If you look, I if you've got time, I encourage you to go look at the at the slides because I've got two uh, uh, Paul Campus and Pete Delisi uh, were at deck at at various times, and they've got different uh, different uh, descriptions of what they they think happened. Uh, by the way, and they pretty much agree uh, with where, uh, what, with what I've said, I'm, uh, and they've got, in, in a way, they've got different representation. And I think you'll find, in particularly, uh, Paul's stuff is very good in terms of providing a background on the whole industry. So as you're looking at these other talks, you, you can use those slides as a as a kind of background slide. Uh, the 8600. One of the problems there was uh, was that it was too was late. This was an this was our first attempt to make Echo uh, 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 gate using gate arrays. Uh, this was this was not done in the VLSI group, but it was done in the CPU group. We had gotten the VLSI group going, and they were take, going like gangbusters. But the CPU groups had not, the big CPU groups had not switched over to uh, to thinking CMOS at that time. So there was a kind of a cultural shift there. But basically, it was it was introduced too late. Uh, uh, Vinod Kosla, who was one of the founders at Sun, said, "Gee, the reason we got going was everybody was out there ready to buy an 8600." Uh, that's w but we took all the money that had been budgeted for the VAX replacement or the 780 replacement, and we bought and we and we uh, filled them up with workstations. So there were a bunch of things that were uh, that that happened in there. This, by the way, this diagram here is one of uh, that I uh, of a kind of a. This has got the whole world on it, which you you know you can only. I, I said I wanted to show this on the grounds that everybody would have a a hard copy or can get a get a get a printout of it. But um, anyway, I think it's it really marks the different eras and and does cover the uh, in this case it goes from 45 to to 2000. So it's a it's a long 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 piece of, of time. Um, the 
and I was I was doing some annotation of this today and putting putting different things on there which I'm not going which I can't can't I'm not going to do now but it turns out that that if you look at it that that it's every there's a remarkable clock rate of what I put on as events and that is it's a 12 year cycle which is two six year cycles which is four four three year semiconductor cycles so there's you know I believe in the semiconductor I believe in the process evolution process evol process three year process gestation of semiconductor process is really has been the clock and pretty much until till now it may still be I don't know but it but it certainly uh, I, I as I marked events here it was like clockwork of, of simply of the major events cor corresponded to uh, uh, to a, a three-year clock or six-year clock beat um, now we got a couple of choices one is I've got uh, things at the uh, I've got another another section here that I could go over or we could go into a uh, this is on sort of organization and culture that was a uh, 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 came out of um, a thought I've used Ed Shine's uh, uh, book as kind of a uh, a, a framework here, or we can stop and just go into questions. Which would you prefer? Ed? Ed. People have questions? Do you want to hear the culture part? We've got about another two. Maybe a real brief thing. There's a vote for the culture on this end, Gordon. Okay. Hey, Gordon, go. I, I have to catch a plane to New Jersey in, uh, later tonight, so I actually do have to leave a plane after or so. Okay, we'll take these slides with you. It'll keep I you busy em. all night. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so, okay. Uh, I these these I've uh, these are campuses slides, and I love love this one, uh, which you you which you can't read. It starts with cultural sources and and all up, uh, and then ex external environment. Let me not do that. Uh, this is a uh, thing that. Uh, uh, a little bit of a comparison with uh, with Mic with Microsoft. Uh, let me go back here. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, uh, I'm back. Okay, this is Cusimano and Selby. This is a very old old uh, description that Cusimano uh, wrote. But I think, in fact, it's really, uh, uh, I think, characterizes, you know, it, it seems to be uh, still fairly typical of what, uh, uh, what Microsoft is like in terms of its values and how it operates. That is certainly this sort of predominant thing of, of, of finding smart people and, and really driven in, in, in that way. Uh, I wish I could say, from what I know, everything is done in small teams. I, I don't think I can say that. Uh, uh, there's certainly a lot uh, that, that 
the times when that's violated is when Microsoft gets in trouble, when there's just too many people working on something. This is absolutely true of, of pioneering orchestrating mass market. Uh, everything from the uh, from the uh, phone, you know, the phone places where one is leading versus where one is trying trailing. I, and I'd say the the thing that I feel probably the most proud of Microsoft about that's probably the least known is the is the uh, uh, the all the stuff that's going on with the with the tele with TV the IPTV. The um, uh, media center, all of those were really pioneering uh, systems. Uh, they've taken, you know, years and years to uh, to get to get the get to a, get profitable. They're still not uh, mass markets per se, but in fact, it characterizes the uh, the way that Microsoft works. Uh, to continue to work on uh, it finds that it has a direction it stays there and stays in it so in fact it 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 focuses on evolution and then uh, working working to those uh, to those goals so uh, I think that those are really important uh, attributes this one here uh, this last one attack the future uh, be or be in the mainstream. I think mainstream is real. There's a huge amount of, of uh, attention to that. Bill has got a bill, and everybody else has got a very good, very good antenna on that issue of the mainstream. Whether it's the home, uh, the service-oriented architecture, whether it's software as a service, games, uh, the uh, cell phones, whatever. So these are all. All, all things that I think are, uh, you know, for, for what Microsoft wants to be, are important, uh, Im important attributes. If I look at, uh, this is what Shine had said in terms of, of his, uh, his uh, attributes he thought were really important, that is, Active problem solving, so that there's, uh, like Microsoft, there's always a lot of, a lot of conflict coming up. That is, there's a, always a lot, lot of how should you do something, and very often it leads to multiple, uh, too many things, uh, trying too many things, and too many overlapping stuff. A lot of personal freedom, a lot of uh, uh, people who have to take responsibility. Um, a thing that I had. Plan had coined a word, a saying that I had had uh, uh, coined at uh, Deck was was to sep was never separate the planning from the execution. So that who and then I do that by these just these four 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 words. Then so it's he who plans does. So you basically, if you're going to do something, you don't say, "Hey, I got this great plan. We're going to conquer this." Well, fine. Who's going to do it? Well, get those guys to do it. And if you don't do it, you're stupid. And that comes from not having staff and not 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 relying on significant uh, staff and having separate uh, separate. Uh, particularly, this the thing that that often happens in an organization is a is a separation between marketing and engine and engineering. 
and at DEC, uh, and actually at Microsoft, the the product marketing and product uh, management are with the with the with the development group, and this was the way it was done at at DEC. There was every every four years, uh, there's some the marketing, you know, there would be a big fight uh, brewing, and somebody would say. Uh, they would come after me and say, "I want all of your marketing product uh, product uh, managers. We want to move all the product planning, all the product management into a separate organization that's independent of engineering." And and every year I that contributed to my heart attack. I think a little bit of of no, you're not getting those people because uh, when you separate them, why then? Then who's responsible for the thing? It's, you know, because it's like the marketing guys are. Well, I told you what to build. You just couldn't build it, and so you have to negotiate that that very contentious boundary. I'd say as close to the uh, product and the decision making as you can can get. So lots of of uh, run with conflict uh, in a technical organization. There is inherent conflict all the time. Of how to do something or what what approach to use, and then getting how you decide and uh, to get buy-in. Um, there's a bit of let the market decide, and this was where I would say I didn't uh, didn't really agree with the uh, with the three PCs of let's not let the market decide. I certainly I think at uh, uh, I think those. If you're going to do the three, I mean, if you do do them, do them. Uh, uh, I could have gotten rid of one, uh, and it probably would have been the PDP-11 one. But certainly, it wasn't set up for for uh, winning, and that was pretty clear right at the announcement. What if floppy disks were compatible too? Right, a file got, system. You picked a you picked a proprietary floppy disk format, which I couldn't even port IBM PC software to your machines. You oh, that read. was on the PC. Yeah, on the PC, PC in the rainbow. You couldn't you couldn't read floppies. Oh, that was a disaster, yeah. absolute disaster. When I was at NSF, uh, Ken sent me said, "Here, I'm going to send you a deck PC," and I got got it, and it didn't have any software. And he said, "Well, I said I want to." I get the software from this company. That software doesn't work. That's right. I said, "This is insane. What is this? Don't you get it?" And and it was a beautiful piece. It was a beautiful piece of of hardware, but it was but it wasn't a PC. And uh, this was in '86, and so this was after that whole thing had been settled. There wasn't anything to decide. The standard was set. You don't make anything else, and uh, yeah, that was a pathetic, uh, uh, pathetic thing. On the other hand, if you look at our keyboards today, it is the deck. The keyboard I'm on is the LKO one, which had a. I think at the time I ridiculed it as a head of engineering. Of it had a hundred people working on <coughs> met and talking about the standard. We had the deck keyboard standard, but on the other hand, it turned out to be something that's lasted. Uh, uh, 30 years or so in terms of the standards. Um, Washington again. Um, regarding let the market decide, one of the takeaways I got from the Shine book 
was that DEC really didn't understand that market. They had focused for so long on the scientific and technical customer and embraced that customer base to such an extent that there was almost a disdain for the general computing or non-technical computing market so that when there was an effort to court that market for financial reasons, they really didn't have the DNA to be able to grok that market. Well, I think certainly the PC was certainly quite different from that, from what were the, I'd say the market segments, because DEC was in several financial market or commercial market segments with VAX and all that. So they did have customers that were in there, and we were doing quite well in that. I'd say a flaw that probably is out of the whole, that's not so much in this presentation, is that DEC, on that steep part of the upcurve, DEC hired like mad. They hired IBM people. And basically, when you brought these IBM people in to sell something, they basically, to the old line DEC customers, they were basically thrown out. They said, if we want to buy from IBM salesmen, we'll go to IBM. And fundamentally, IBM and DEC traded places in terms of how they marketed and what they did. So that whole segment, I'd say half of the DEC failure had to do with products, product strategy, things I've already talked about. But the other half had to do with the way they were doing the marketing and addressing the market, especially with having really knowledgeable people going in versus having very high overhead people that, in fact, required having a lot of support and who didn't know the product. So it really, it was a change. Everybody, particularly people in the sales organization, reflected on that. Sheridan. Yeah, I'm going to make a comment. I worked at DEC from 1985 to 1995. And so I saw the height of DEC, and Ken Olson was on the cover of Fortune magazine. And then I saw the demise. I saw what happened. There's one issue inside of DEC that happened over and over and over again, and it was lack of vision. Upper management did not see what was going on in the market as a whole. It wasn't marketing. It wasn't engineering. They were just trying to do the best that they could. It was upper management. It was Ken Olson and then Bob Palmer failed at it and the board, and quite frankly, the executive committee. And that's why DEC fell apart, which is probably the story of every failure in any market. Yeah. Yeah, I think you can't. Yeah, thank you. I think that I have that. I think that whole thing of I had in, I guess this is really my final summary one of that deals with that. The top three exec didn't understand computing. They didn't feel computing. They didn't, you know, it was like, you know, Ken would have actually, Ken was on the Ford board. I think he helped them redesign some of their wiring around their engine. He was proud of that. And rightfully so. But 
the problem was he didn't have this, even though he had built the, uh, the first core memory computer, he really didn't have that feeling of what a computer is and what, a poten what potential a computer had. It was the vision of where are these things going. I mean, it's like anyone who's in computing sort of, really in computing sort of say, what, it, what do you do? We have this aspiration. It's like having a child, this sort of growing child that grows exponentially. And it, you've got this aspiration for it. And you could see that there's no reason you can't do that, but you know you can't do it now. They can't jump 50 feet high because, well, they, we don't know how to, how to make the springs or this or that. So we're limited all the time. But, it, but the issue of vision, the fact that Ken said, gee, who would want a PC in their home? I had written a memo in 1965, when I was, or, or 67, I guess, I was at Carnegie. My children were, were on a time on a crappy IBM time-sharing system, doing using it. And I say, "Hey, we've really got to understand this. This is really an important thing. It's a little early, you know, by by 20 years. But on the other hand, it was a was an important thing. So he didn't have. I think it's vision and also aspiration. Didn't understand understand this issue of levels of integrations. Make buy." the importance of, of software and the independent software vendors. Because DEC had pioneered multiple channels. It went to the market. And in DEC's failing period, basically the guys at, in sales said, let's get rid of all of these channels because they present conflict. You can buy a computer from this guy or this guy or that way through these channels. There's all different markups. Let's get rid of all those. Well, it turns out all those channels, they got, they got rid of them. They got it organized. They got it, but they also got rid of the software. They got rid of the vendors that were actually making the stuff work because they didn't understand how hard it is to get a computer to really work in an organization. And a lot of the ISVs and system integrators, that was their job. And people thought, oh, they're ripping us off by taking margin from, from that. Uh, that IBM picked that absolutely up at that at in the in the mid '80s, took totally copied the deck strategy, and then really used it to wipe deck out in that. So in fact, they and they were out of control from a, from just in a number standpoint. Too many people per revenue. So if you, because you've got to run your company and all of those things. These are all things that, in fact, you know, I, uh, I certainly had strong opinions about, and and you know, but again, I didn't think it was like giving up my life for them. But, uh, but the other thing was that that the technical ones, but the marketing organization and and the top were really important. Gordon, thank you. Fantastic. Thanks. Okay.